Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be diving deep into country music and iconic country music recordings. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. So welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. We are very excited about today's episode. We are going to be taking a good look at country music recordings and the people behind them. It's going to be a fun ride, so make sure you listen all the way to the end. We're going to be hearing from amazing country icons such as Ralph Peer, Bob Brumley, Bonnie Guitar, Bud Isaacs, Glenn Snoddy, Kyle Lenning, and Tom Pick. A really fantastic episode ahead, for sure. I um, had so much fun listening to all of these interviews to kind of put this all together. And just, you know, I I happen to know a decent amount about the history of country music, but this was just even better with getting to really see, like, the people that were involved and th- that were part of those recordings. Uh, so some of the iconic songs that we're going to be hearing amazing stories about are uh, Don't Worry About Me, Jolene, I'll Fly Away, Dark Moon, Slowly, and a few others as well. Yeah, this is really, really fun because there are some behind-the-scenes stories that you may never have heard by uh, some of the folks that were there, um, recording engineers and the like. So um, I'm really excited about giving some voice to those particular people and, and those behind-the-scenes stories. A great place to start, of course, as always, is the beginning. And how blessed we are to have really the beginning of country music recorded as part of the NAM Oral History Program because we got to interview uh, Ralph Peer, who is the uh, son of the gentleman who uh, took his little recording equipment from Atlanta where he started recording in the uh, early 1920s and uh, went to this place called Bristol. Bristol, Tennessee sits right on the border of uh, Bristol, Virginia, and amazing things happened there. I, I, I liked um, the words of our good friend, the historian over at the Country Music Hall of Fame, and John is such a, a, a great, clever guy. He called this the Big Bang of country music. Uh, when Ralph set up his little recording studio and had a couple of people come in, uh, namely uh, Fiddlin' John Carson, the Carter family, and Jimmy Rogers, uh, who is well known as the father of country music. All of those recordings done in that little setup really started what we now know as country recordings. And so what a great place to start for this podcast and talking about iconic recordings is hearing from the son of the guy who really got it all started for us. So let's uh, begin our podcast hearing from Ralph Peer. I think it's important to say that the time I spent with my father was long past when he first came to music, uh, and uh, he passed away in 1960. 
Uh, so just to use that as a caveat, and my discussions with him, I had, I think, a very good father-son relationship, but they weren't focused on the music business. There are many, many uh, other parts of uh, life that we discussed, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but my father first came to the music business because his father operated a dry goods store in Independence, Missouri, very close to Kansas City. And uh, he was uh, employed uh, by the store to, among other things, to go and to fetch the goods from downtown Kansas City that had included uh, the early uh, Columbia recordings in that case. Um, and he, the situation evolved so that uh, by the time he was in high school, he was a summer employee of uh, the local Columbia distributor. Uh, and then... Uh, Jumping quickly, he served in the first war. Uh, both my wife and I have fathers who served in the Great War, which is a, a little bit unusual. Uh, and um, <clears throat> he, when he returned, he was in the Merchant Marine, uh, and he was young, so he was in for the last months of the war. But it also it was a first-in, first-out situation, so he spent quite a bit of time in Europe. Uh, before he came home, he wasn't married, didn't have any commitments uh, at that point, and uh, he uh, he was called by the fellow who used to be his boss uh, in the Columbia Records setup that had since moved to OK Records, which was a small startup, uh, a little more adventuresome label, and based in New York, and that's how my father uh, started uh, working in the in the business. Fascinating, yeah. What did you glean from from his past as far as where his passion most lied? His passion uh, was driven by what I call open ears. He was very interested in uh, being commercially successful, but he had a very different route to get there. Uh, and I think the commercial uh, motivation was very helpful to uh, many styles of music that he became involved with, which I'll mention in a moment, uh, because it, it meant that there was, if you will, a, a solid foundation on which these could be built. These were not museum pieces that were in a static state, but rather types of music that, uh, that moved over time, uh, became uh, a little different uh, each time there was a, a step in the process. Uh, and this allowed them to stay alive and, and interesting uh, to consumers. Uh, his uh, first uh, recordings of that nature uh, were with OK, and in 1920, he did the first recording of uh, Black Singing the Blues, um, which opened up a, a, a new horizon for him and for the company. Uh, almost, uh, almost by accident, uh, at the beginning they found that there was a, a very large uh, demand for this type of record, not only in the city, which was the traditional place, very different use of the term, but urban music of the time, uh, but also in the rural south. And these records uh, were imported into the south by uh, Pullman uh, car uh, employees uh, who would take them down and uh, make a profit and selling them onward down there. Uh, and uh, soon enough my father went down to explore the situation, found a great deal of talent, uh, local talent down there, uh, and built upon these lines. 
1924, on just such a trip, he did what's generally considered the first commercial country recording. Uh, and then uh, a bit later in life, uh, although not that much later, by the end of the uh, 1930s, he was already involved with uh, Latin music, uh, which again uh, was a new type of music, a new audience, and he uh, was very interested, enthusiastic about the uh, the fact that, that there was a, uh, a style of music that was a new market uh, for him to work with, uh, at the same time uh, keeping very active uh, in the country market and uh, still uh, managing and uh, growing the careers of the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, uh, which was uh, quite phenomenal. And he kept very good contacts in the uh, black uh, rural community uh, particularly in Memphis, where Will Shade uh, became uh, a great confidant and a partner with him, uh, named producer on many of the works that they recorded together. Uh, and um, it was a matter of uh, placing trust in, in these people, uh, and that's how he was able to work in so many genres uh, simultaneously. How did the development of the um, publishing aspect of it was that from the very beginning, along with the recordings, or did that come over time? No, he began his career in the record business. Uh, and when he moved to Victor, it was not without some uh, upheaval that went along with it. Uh, he is uh, alleged to have said, and I, it seems uh, reasonable to me, that he never actually was an employee of either Victor Talking Machine or RCA Victor, as it shortly became. Uh, but rather had agreements with them where he would be managing the uh, artists uh, who uh, were often songwriters as well uh, and and their publisher and he felt uh, very attracted to the publishing side of the business uh, he was uh, one of the very first to routinely pay art uh, composer royalties in this case uh, whereas before the record companies, when they had thought to do this, would essentially sign the publishing, put it in the back drawer and keep the two cents at that time, uh, mechanical rate for each side uh, on their books. Uh, so this was an opportunity for him to uh, earn income uh, and at the same time to uh, encourage uh, these individuals to find and create uh, new music, uh, which was very important. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I love the book, by the way. I didn't get a chance to tell you that yet, but uh, fascinating. I'm waiting for the movie. <laughs> very good. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that that book brought out was these little stories behind the scenes, you know, like behind You Are My Sunshine and, and uh, the Carter family relationship and so on. And I wonder if we could talk just a little bit about what you saw as some of his uh, gifts and talents as far as making those connections with people. Well, I certainly think that he was a very uh, open individual. Uh, I've had the, uh, the pleasure and, and honor of, of working with these people and their heirs uh, during my tenure at the company, and it's been one of the most rewarding part of things uh, of, of, that I do in my career is to uh, be in touch with people that we've had uh, a working relationship with over decades, uh, now getting up into 80 years. Uh, and uh, just uh, two weeks ago, I was in uh, Bristol, Tennessee, Virginia, and 
uh, met with the uh, Carter family, the current generation of it down there, and had good talks and, and uh, reminiscences with them. Uh, and uh, Jimmy Davis was another uh, a person who, you mentioned him, of course, but uh, Jimmy was one of the most uh, successful individuals at coming from a very um, unsophisticated background and making that an, a, a real asset in his life to the great benefit of the people of Louisiana in this case. Uh, you know, he was a sharecropper's uh, son and grew up with uh, numerous siblings in a sharecropping environment, uh, meaning there were no such things as birth certificates and so forth. Uh, and uh, he went on to become a well-known singing personality, even did some, uh, some Western movies. Uh, and he uh, wrote uh, the song, You Are My Sunshine, and recorded it, and it became popular, so he had a certain celebrity status that came from that. Uh, but the remarkable part of the story, which is very well reflected in the substantial New York Times uh, obituary uh, that was uh, published uh, on uh, Jimmy's death uh, when he was, I believe, 103, uh, was that uh, here was an, an individual who had been brought in when there was a great deal of political corruption in Louisiana through the Huey Long years, and he was brought in as someone who was not corrupted. Uh, and in fact, they couldn't have been more spot on about this individual. He was governor for four years, and during that time, uh, when the legislature uh, adjourned, as it uh, did in uh, most rural states, uh, agricultural states, uh, for the agricultural season, after the final gavel had fallen, he would bring out his guitar and sing his song, It Makes No Difference Now, uh, conveying the message that you should uh, go home and be friends and communicate so that when you get back, uh, when you get back to uh, Baton Rouge, the capital of Louisiana, you would have uh, some uh, wonderful uh, memories to fall back upon when you were debating these uh, very difficult issues. Uh, and then he uh, stepped down, he refused to run again, but he was called back, I believe it was eight years later, uh, and at that time he became governor during the civil rights crisis. And as the New York Times pointed out, it was the only southern state uh, that didn't have uh, difficult riots uh, during the civil rights era. And he did this uh, by keeping people talking. Now, later in life, uh, he and I became very good friends. And uh, he would call right through his uh, 90th uh, birthday, 100th birthday years, about once a month. And I assure you, I'd put everything aside when Jimmy called. And I had some of the most fascinating discussions because here's a man who'd, who'd really seen so much in his time and, and had so much of value to, to impart. It was a great, uh, great privilege to be able to uh, have those conversations with him one of the uh, side benefits of being a music publisher the way I look at it. So welcome back. Uh, that was Ralph Peer talking a little bit about uh, his father's upbringing and kind of the beginnings of his uh, work in the music industry and, and everything, which is 
such a great story. We're going to hear a little bit more about uh, from him in a little bit as well. Uh, but coming up next, we are going to be hearing from Bob Brumley, whose father, Albert Brumley, worked on in the industry and talks a little bit about the songs that his dad wrote, um, a little song that I'm sure most people have actually heard of and you just didn't even realize, uh, called I'll Fly Away, uh, which was made popular um, or mostly popular from the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. So we're going to listen to a little bit of Bob Rumley. Um, like I said before, he is uh, part of the Albert E. Brumley and Sons Company, which is currently run by Bob's daughter, Betsy. Uh, so it's still in the family and still going strong. Uh, so here is Bob Brumley. Well, it all started, I guess, you know, if you want to go back to the beginning, Dad started when he was about 16 years old, you know, and he had a passion for somewhere, or he had attended a singing school, from what I understand, so gave him a passion for shape notes and gospel music. So he hitchhiked from where he lived in, at the time in Rock Hall, Oklahoma, to Hartford, Arkansas, to the Hartford Music Company, which was owned by E.M. Bartlett. I think he had 50 cents, I think, something in his pocket like that, you know. Some people thought he'd caught a bus, but actually he, he rode a, he hitchhiked. It's 16 miles from what I understand, so. Anyway, when he got there, he didn't know what to do or where to go, you know, so he went to Mr. Bartlett and told him he wanted to learn how to read music and to write music and do all that. And he asked him if he had any money, and he said, no, I don't, you know. So he said, well, I just better take you over to my house. And he took him over there and put him up. And, and he became Dad's mentor. Dad, I guess, would say got his passion from E.M. Bartlett because, uh, you know, he, he wanted to learn. And he, he spent his entire musical career learning from that experience, you know. Now, did your grandparents play instruments? Well, they were, they did, but they were, you know, they were like family people. Everybody sat around and played music at home and stuff. That's what they did. My mama, my mother uh, learned, they learned to read music and stuff, you know. In fact, my dad was teaching a singing school. That's how I met my mom, huh. you know. So he was teaching a singing school in Powell, Missouri. And uh, that's how I met my mother. That's where she was raised and where I'm at now. And... You know, it just went from there. So, but they all, even her whole family was kind of musical. Hmm. So, so how did your dad's career develop? Did it begin with songwriting or performing? Well, it began with actually with songwriting, kind of both. You know, I mean, when he when he was learning how to make, they were making or manufacturing songbooks. They were everybody in that in that company did did everything. You know, they they sung. They they made song books and, and did whatever they needed to do there. And Dad became part of the Hartford Quartet for a while, you know, and, and they, they traveled around different singing conventions and, and sang songs. And they, used, they sold their songbooks for that, for that music company there. Uh, so they could, uh, you know, that's how they paid for their trip and everything. So, and that's how they got, the songwriters got paid those days was with songbooks. They didn't, uh, they didn't get paid real money. Whatever they sold in songbooks, they got to keep. So fascinating. It is. So, what are some of the early songs that your dad wrote? Well, the first song he ever wrote was a, call, a song called "I Can Hear Them Singing Over There." That was his first one. 
But of course, his most famous song was "I'll Fly Away," and that's one of his earliest songs. You know, he'd wrote about oh seven or eight, ten, something like that before that. But that was his most famous song. And after that, you know, came songs like "I'll Meet You in the Morning," "Turn Your Radio On," "Jesus Hold My Hand." All those were his big songs. You know, "Rank Strangers to Me," uh, "Turn Your Radio On," songs like that came in the after "I'll Fly Away." You know, most of his early songs are not really that well-known, the ones before I'll Fly Away, because mm. that was a song that established him. Yeah, tell me about that. Do you know the story of how that song developed? Well, I know how, how, how he got the idea to write it. You know, he was, uh, he, Dad had went to the Hartford Music Company, but he had returned home for a little while. And his dad was a sharecropper, you know, and they raised cotton. And he was out in the field behind the mule. And there was prisoner's song. I don't know if you're familiar with the prisoner's song, which was, if I had the wings of an angel from these prison bars, I'd fly. That's how he got the idea for that song, because if I had those wings, he said, I'd fly away from here. And that's how he, the song, the idea came. And it took him about three years to write that song. He started, I think he said, in 29, writing it, finished it and published it in 1932. So, but that's, that's the thing that kicked off his career, was that really kicked it off. So do you recall how it became as popular as it has become? No, you know, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows how it does. Doesn't it? It, 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 he put it in the convention book, and he started saying in conventions. The first commercial recording we had was in 1940, and we had two that year. And I, I can't recall their names right now, but they won't well know. But that was the kind of thing. It just, it just kind of took on a life of its own. You know, as it as time went on, the song just got more and more popular. Mm -hmm. And it's still just as popular today. as it, It's just it's probably in its heyday right now. You know, I mean, everybody sings that song. So that's kind of how that came about. You know, I mean, he just... And I don't think he had any idea what that thing would do. Because <laughs> it's just a simple song, you know. But it's got a lot of meaning to it. No doubt. And it's one of those songs, you know, like what we call American standards now, that yeah. can be interpreted by so many different people in different ways. Different ways, yeah. And it's been recorded about every language and every genre of music, you know, and uh, uh, I don't know about every language you can talk about. So, and Ray Stevens even cut it in three quarter time. So, it's been it's been done a lot of <laughs> different ways. Did he have a favorite? Oh, I think his favorite song was If We Never Meet Again. Mm. But, uh, of course, if you want to talk about popularity-wise, I'll Fly Away was his, probably became his favorite song. You know? Yeah, no doubt. So, What about the recordings? Do you have any favorite renditions of that song, I'll Fly Away? No, I, I really kind of favor country, the country recordings of it. You know, guys like Alan Jackson or something like that. Uh, mm. uh, there's been so many, many of them, you know, that I can't really pick a favorite as far as that goes. But I mean, about everybody in the business has recorded it one time or another. Did he establish his own publishing company? Yeah, he did. Yeah, how did that come about? Well. Dad, after he left Hartford in 1937, went to work for Stamps Baxter in, in Dallas, Texas, and VO Stamps. And Dad was kind of in line. He, in fact, he started writing songs for Stamps Baxter in 37, and he was kind of in line to take over Stamps Baxter after VO Stamps. But 
Bill Stamps died before that could happen. Mm. He's only 42 years old, what I stand. So, uh, so Dad, I guess after him and the, and the people that took over from Frank, from uh, B.O. and B.O.'s brother Frank, uh, they kind of didn't get along, you know, too well. So Dad decided just to establish his own company, company, and he did that in 1944, Albert E. Brumley & Sons. Do you have a favorite lyric of uh, I'll Fly Away? No, I think the first one is, that's, you know. That's it. But it, but it is, but you know, that song is, is all those all those verses, you know, are, are songs about, actually about can't wait for this to happen, you know. Just a few more worry days and then, you know. So all those, I don't know if there's a favorite line in there. Uh, they're all good lines. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, they're, they're simple. You know, it's just a simple melody, simple tune, three chord song. Not got any fancy chords in it, unless you want to put them, you can put them in there, but <laughs> you know, it's a three chord song. So, and I think that's what makes it popular. It's easy to sing got a lot of meaning to it, impacts a lot of people's life. All right, that was Bob Brumley talking about his father and the creation of one of the most iconic songs I can think of in country music, if not the entire world, and that is All Fly Away. Uh, fantastic story there, and just a shout-out to Betsy and the whole family for helping arrange that interview in Arkansas back in 2018 with Bob. Great guy, great story. I loved it because, you know, when I was a kid, I remember those uh, hits of radio publications that their company sent out. Um, I found one in the garage sale that was in the, from the 30s, and I thought it was the greatest treasure I'd ever found. And I learned some of those songs. My mom would play them on the piano. I play them on guitar. I remember that very, very well. So um, very, very special to uh, have the chance to get to know those guys and to record that great story. Um, So as we continue uh, with looking at some of the iconic recordings of country music, we're going to return back to uh, Ralph Peer uh, II and his 2016 interview for the NAM Oral History Program. And here he'll be talking a little bit more about his uh, his father and talking about the Bristol recordings back in the 1920s. So, um, you know, just landmark recordings. We'd mentioned them a little bit ago. And um, just a, a little shout out for those who want to get a playlist going. Uh, Fiddlin' John Carson's recording of Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane is... Uh, uh, one of those very early recordings that Mr. Peer did, along with uh, Jimmy Rogers doing The Soldier's Sweetheart. Of course, uh, Jimmy went on to become the father of country music. His, his other nickname was The Singing Brakeman because of his uh, outfit that was dressed up always as a, uh, a railroad man, uh, engineer. And then, of course, the, the Carter family um, really started something very, very big in country music by involving uh, family members and different instruments, along with the songs that... Uh, 
originated in the uh, the the uh, the woods and the hills around uh, Virginia and Tennessee, including the now classic "The Storms Are on the Ocean," which uh, also was recorded back in the early twenties, thanks to Mr. Pierce. So let's get back to this story as we talk more about iconic country recordings. I was going to ask you, just as sort of like curiosity, what is your take on the significance of the Bristol recordings? Well, uh, I certainly wouldn't be in the position I'm in now if it had not been for the Bristol recordings. I think the Bristol recordings, though, have a significance that uh, runs broader and deeper than what it has meant uh, for me. Um, it was a perfect storm in the best sense. The new technology that had been developed uh, starting with uh, Western Electric, uh, subsequently Bell Labs, of the electronic microphone, carbon microphone, uh, combined with the fact that the Victor Talking Machine Company uh, had designed uh, an apparatus that was mechanically driven, so it didn't require electricity, uh, was terribly fortuitous. Uh, so the Bristol sessions, as you will recall, were one of the earliest sessions that used this so-called portable equipment. Uh, it was electronic, but it ran off batteries. It didn't run off wall current so that you could use it in uh, various uh, locations. Uh, and the patent that Victor Talking Machine had and was subsequently sold to RCA uh, was a what you might call a pickup cartridge. Now, that's a term that was used throughout the stereo years of the 50s, 60s. But in fact, this was a diaphragm uh, on something that might look like a cigar tin, or, or sorry, a tobacco tin, uh, that picked up the vibrations from the record on a new needle. You always put a new needle in, or at least sharpened it before you used it each time. Uh, and would, uh, would amplify them by an expanding horn, like you'd find in a trumpet or a tuba or some other uh, brass instrument. Uh, but the shape of that expansion was it had a playback curve that was the reciprocal of the uh, recording curve of the microphone onto the recordings so that it actually increased the, quote, fidelity, because it had a, a more flat frequency response that way, uh, of the recordings that were made. Uh, during the 75th anniversary celebrations of the Bristol uh, sessions in Bristol, uh, they very kindly played for me a uh, recording, an almost new recording, of Jimmy Rogers, uh, of course recorded with that style, uh, and uh, the top of the line Victrolas actually had, unlike the picture that you think of, the His Master's Voice picture, the, uh, the horn uh, projected through the bottom of the cabinet, and the top of the cabinet closed. And this meant that you didn't have any uh, spurious sound emanating from the actual stylus on the, on the rec record. And I, I had never heard it played in that pristine a condition with the top of the line recording. But it, it absolutely amazed me as to how, how contemporary it sounded. It wasn't stereo, of course, and, and, and I, it's not exactly the same, but it was, it was really remarkable. It was none of the tinny sound that you often associate with this. Now, the fact that the playback units didn't require electricity meant they could be throughout rural America before the 
Tennessee Valley Authority electrified Middle America. And you could order your uh, Victrola from Sears, be delivered to your door, a little bit like Amazon today, except not quite as quick. Uh, and uh, so there was a, a great demand for the product and a great demand for the product on Victor that had been recorded uh, using uh, this uh, patented s system. So uh, this meant that rural America could enjoy in their living rooms uh, this material that was being recorded there. It's not so often remembered that before the Bristol Sessions, uh, the, the prototype of this equipment was actually used uh, by my father in Memphis. And um, to, put, uh, to put a light on it, uh, Memphis at the time was the uh, homicide capital of the United States. This was not an easy city. It had gone through a lot. Uh, and the recordings were made downtown in a warehouse, uh, as they were in Bristol, but under a little less uh, difficult circumstances. And those are, were uh, important early recordings of uh, what we uh, subsequently called R&B. Uh, so you had... Who were the artists in that? Well, those would be the Memphis Jug Band, and uh, I've mentioned Will Shade, who was a part of that operation. Gus okay. Cannon was there, and so forth. Fascinating. So uh, th this was the setting, you see, that provided a commercial draw, pull, for having these recordings, combined with the very good fortune of people of talent. There were a very large number of artists that recorded in the Bristol Sessions. Uh, the two most often mentioned, uh, of course, are the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. Uh, but uh, also the Stonemans, there were uh, gospel uh, choirs and and uh, you know, quite a range of material that was done there. Yeah, that's amazing. What a great history. Another thing, uh, speaking of your dad, I'm sort of curious about uh, was, uh, I guess years from that, he decided to go with BMI, one of the first to do that, I think, as opposed to ASCAP. And I wonder what your take on that decision was. Well, it was a very wise and necessary decision at the time, which also enabled the growth, um, the growth of what we now call American music. Because starting at the time of the Bristol Sessions, for exactly the reasons I mentioned to you, and even before then with his early recordings of black music and, and country music in the rural South, uh, on using the older uh, technology, all of a sudden, a very important piece of cultural content from one community was available to outside of that community. And it, I think the late 20s was a time when the United States was a melting pot, maybe more so than, than since then. And that summer of, of 1927, of course, was remarkable for it, the Lindbergh and uh, all the various other things that happened that summer, Babe Ruth, and um, there was a lot going on. And this, uh, what I would call cultural mobility that was in people's minds, uh, opened up uh, an interaction among the various types of music that I think is important to this day and how American music is defined and, and thought of in, in various parts of the world. And I would, uh, I would add that the, the Latin component to that has been very helpful too, particularly in the jazz genre. So 
When BMI started, the, the circumstances were such that uh, ASCAP, which was primarily, and again to use an older version of the phrase, primarily involved with urban music, Broadway and, and pop and, and the like, uh, was um, uh, there was there was a boycott of their works because they had raised their fees a very considerable amount to the radio stations, and this of course is what caused all the, the ruckus uh, that we now see. And music publishing, very important part of our consent decree uh, situation. Uh, but when BMI started up, my father was a great supporter of it because. His type of music, if you will, the rural, the roots music, uh, was not on top of the agenda at ASCAP and was not getting the kind of attention and, and payouts that he thought were fair. And his deal with BMI was that I would get paid as if I had a double-A arrangement with ASCAP at the time. So the radio stations, which were starved for material to play, and had these new records, uh, were able to play all, an awful lot of these various types of, of roots music. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of Americans heard it that way and uh, made it uh, much more popular than it might have been had there been the, the standard pop music uh, easily available at the same time. Mm. You are listening to the Music History Project, and we've just been hearing some great interviews. So far, we've listened to Ralph Peer and Bob Brumley. Coming up next, we're going to be hearing from Bonnie Guitar, who was very well known for being a record producer in the 50s and 60s, with one of her most popular acts being The Ventures. Um, she was also a guitarist and, and played on many songs. Um, she's going to be talking about her work with the song Dark Moon, and talking about some of her guitars. It, it's such an adorable interview, and I very much encourage you to check it out online. We have her full interview posted there. You can head over to namnamm.org slash library and search for Bonnie Guitar, and you will see her full interview there. So here is Bonnie Guitar talking about Dark Moon. I'd love to hear the story about Dark Moon. Oh, Dark Moon. Great story about Dark Moon. Ned Miller was a... a a writer who came to the same stable that I was in, which was Faber Robinson's stable. And Faber was, uh, was a brilliant man. He's, he was hard to work with, but he was just absolutely brilliant. Mm. So he had a studio in Malibu and, and, and his uh, Studio was in Malibu Canyon, where was a big house and studios and everything. We all lived out there, and that's where we played and rehearsed and practiced and recorded. So we were all looking for a hit record. That's what you do. That's just the way it is. And and uh, Ned Miller came out. He and his wife, and they stayed there for a while. Well, while he was there, he was writing, and he and I wrote Mr. Fire Eyes together and had a pretty good hit on that, and we wrote some other things, and and uh, in the meantime, my mother had gotten, was, was uh, ill with, and so she was in the hospital, so I wanted to go home and be with her at that time. 
So I went home, and while I was home, Faber called me and said, Ronnie, I just, Ned Miller just wrote a song and I want you to hear it and tell me what you think of it. Well, he played Dark Moon on the phone and I, I started to shake. I physically, my body just physically shook when I heard that song. I just knew that song was something that I wanted to do. So uh, I got to, to uh, talk to Faber about that and I told him, I said, I want to do that song. He said, well, you have to come down here. But he said, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm recording it with Dorsey Burnett tonight to release. You heard of Dorsey Burnett? Yeah. So he said, I'm recording it with Dorsey Burnett tonight to release. Well, that terrified me because that meant if he put it out with Dorsey, he's not going to put it out with me mm. as a follow-up. So um, I, I just was so disillusioned by the fact that he, so I said, I'll be on the plane in the morning, so I'll be down, I'll be home, I called it home, and uh, right away. Well, I did, I went the next day, I went down, and uh, I went to in the studio and listened to the song. I did a dumb thing, but you know, I knew nothing about recording business as, as uh, really professionally. So when I heard the song in person, went down and heard it, I got even more excited. So I said to Faber, are you releasing this with Dorsey? He said, I didn't get anything last night. He said, we just can't come up with it. Dorsey just can't seem to sing this song. And he went through it. So he said, I'm going to try it with Dick Pozzolar or somebody else. So I thought, sooner or later I'm going to lose this song. So I said, I'll rescind all my royalties if you let me get this song. Let me have the song to record. And, of course, that's a good thing for him to look at. Because if the song is a hit, he gets all my royalties and he is due, you know. So that was a good thing. It was okay with, with me because it just got me into a song that nobody else has ever recorded and had a hit on it, just that one. So anyway, uh, he, he uh, said, okay, he said, uh, just stay here, don't go back home, stay here, and we'll start recording it. Sure enough, we did. We recorded that with trios, quartets, Quintets, sextets, <laughs> you name it. We had every musician and every kind of mixed up sound that you could get good sounds, don't Because those were all great players. Those were number one players and number two players in the, in the studios. Mm. So they were uh, good players. So it was good. The, the records were coming out Good, I thought, but his, uh, he was not satisfied. Not ever satisfied. Hmm. Never satisfied. Well, you know, I thought he has to know 
better than I know. So I just sang as much as he told me to. And some nights we're in there a long time at night. And many times we couldn't record because we were in the canyon. We lived in the canyon, Malibu Canyon. And if you know going along the ocean, that all those places are, are there's Malibu Canyon and uh, Rodeo Canyon and all those places there. So when all those, all the people come home from work and start using all the electricity and all the water pumps and everything, you can't get a signal. Hmm. So we just had to go out. We had baseball, I mean a, a basketball court there, so we just have to do that. <laughs> One time when we started that I started playing just my style of guitar. And he said, well, let's put that down. Let's try that. We tried everything. So we tried that. And after all this time, after we went to Western Recorders and United Recorders, those were all the big companies at that time, as you know, Capital and all of them. And after we'd done over and over in the studio, we did that and we went back and ended up doing the, the one where I did the intro, the background, and the, the turnarounds and everything on my guitar instead of using the good guitar players who were there. As I said, we had a lot of them. Podler and all those people were good players. But instead of using theirs, he used everything on the record, he used mine. <laughs> so it's, it was really interesting to me to think that, that I did the record, you know, did playing the parts too. So do you have a preferred guitar that you play? I had. It was the Gibson? No, it was a Gretsch. Oh, okay. It was a White Falcon. Mm. Oh, so, so delicate and so exquisite. Had the quali oh, quality that's never been a match that I know of. Mm. Uh, it's a uh, white with white with gold trim. Beautiful. And I used. Uh, Nothing but gold strings on it. Uh, I could get a, get gold strings out of Connecticut, okay. so I'd send for them and get get a dozen at a time. And oh, they were they were wonderful strings. Hmm. They were out very quickly, but they're wonderful strings. And that was a White Falcon, Gretsch. Wow! Oh, you'd like it. <laughs> Action. Velvet action. So good. What a fantastic interview that was. How wonderful to hang out with Bonnie Guitar. That was from 2018, and we've lost her since, and it's just so wonderful to hear her voice and to hear that great passion that she had all the way up to the end about music and her career and was so 
overwhelmed when we got to talk about her recording of Dark Moon. That was uh, 1957, and I definitely consider that an iconic country recording because of uh, its influence on so many different people. It sort of came out at the right time to be an influence on the whole generation of musicians and singers. And of course, it helped the career of the songwriter Ned Miller, uh, who influenced a bunch of other songwriters, um, including a guy that we're going to hear about a little bit later on called Marty Robbins. So uh, fun, iconic stories here. And I really love this idea. So uh, thanks for tuning in and listening to this podcast. We're going to go on to another one um, that I'm, I was overjoyed to have the opportunity to interview Bud Isaacs. Uh, he is the steel guitar player on a ton of country hits, uh, but most notably, uh, he really revolutionized that instrument as a country instrument uh, when he played it for the, uh, the Webb Pierce song recorded in 1954 called Slowly. If you haven't heard that, all you really have to do is hear the first four seconds and you'll know exactly why we're talking about this song today because that opening lick really inspired a lot of people to make sure that that instrument was included in their country recording for, I would say, decades to come. I mean, even now, I believe that uh, pedal players and steel players are influenced by that um, iconic moment. And uh, one he took very lightly during his interview, a great guy, very humble, but also sort of crazy and all over the place. So um, we're really glad that we have this 2010 interview. And I'd just like to add that I would highly recommend that you head on the NAM website to check out Bud's web clip. He has a very entertaining clip that we picked out, and you get to see his pedal steel that has his name right across the front, so you never forget that it's his. <laughs> it's a very good web clip, so I, I definitely recommend watching that one. So here is Bud Isaacs. Maybe we could start with the first steel that you had. How did you get it, and what was it? The first pedal steel? It was a Bigsby. Paul Bigsby built it in Downey, California. But the first one I, I tried to build was one of old double neck steel. I used barn door hinges, Palomar, door springs, everything I get a hold of. And I, I could get the sound I wanted for about two legs. <laughs> and bang. <laughs> Had a hard time. Now, did you talk to Paul Bigsby? Did you know him and ask Doing him? very well. Tell me a little bit about him and how uh, that came about. The steel I had with me that he took in on trade, uh, he, uh, he laughed till he cried on my way. It was a Gibson pedal, pedal steel, electro harp. And I had that thing so wired up. And, uh, Everything wired on it and off of it and everything else. Uh, Paul got laughing about that. And he gave me pretty good money down payment on my big speed because of that. And I said, what are you going to do with it? He said, I'm going to hang it on the wall right above my bench. So whenever I need to laugh, I got to mock at that thing. <laughs> Ever since then, Begsby, I finally sold my Begsby. I was an army, and I had a Gibson too, and 
I was working with Gibson then, and the Boston Army, and well, I think what I was going to say about trading in the uh, oh Bigsby, yeah, I traded to Bigsby, and he hung on Wallace so he could get a big laugh out of it, but uh, I, I had uh, I got my Bigsby finally. Uh, I sold it to a guy when I was in the Army for $250. He just sold it for 80000 And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gave him two cents to have it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't you and Gibson, you created another guitar? Yeah, I, I designed for, uh, several things for Gibson. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, it don't amount to too much. Uh, he he won my ideas on pedal steels and different things, different things to put on them. So he built one, and I carried it around with me for quite a while. It's a triple neck with two with uh, four pedals. I liked it real well, but I wore it out. It didn't take long. The road to wear one out. This one here is 40 years old. It's a rustler. He built, he built nice steel. It's been so tough, it's been thrown around, dumped by airplanes. Anytime you fly with one, they put it put the other luggage and it goes up, thing, bang. Conveyor belts. Oh, yeah. Broke his keys off. <laughs> were there other people playing triple necks when you were? Yeah, triple necks, yeah. Was that common back then? Uh, uh, Buddy Emmons was playing ah. a triple neck. Uh, but he, he, believe it or not, he followed me around. And so did Jimmy Day to see what I was doing, how my pedals worked. And, uh, to get onto no no time to how he could play play them pedals like he invented it. <laughs> Tell me about the pedals. What did you do different? Do you think? Well, the, at first, Alvin O'Reilly had had one a pedal steel long years ago, and uh, but all he could do was put it flat down and and cross and hit a chord. Another chord up here. He couldn't play. He couldn't invert uh, the notes on them, you know. Till I I started uh, these things where you could just change whatever strings you wanted changed to make different chords, and uh, so that that was it. As far as he went, he was one of my favorite people. He's a fine man. Smart guy, too, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Very clever. Well, tell him how you changed your strings different from him. How, what's your tuning and how you pull the strings. I did. Well, from A to flat to C, whatever. Yeah. Where he, I could take it off with cards and things. That wasn't on there for a, for his, 
So he had this big band. They hit a card. He hit a card. Band it two, three chords, and pretty soon he bound. And uh, it's really nice. He sure filled him in good. What instrument did you have when you were with Webb? Bigsby. Oh, the Bigsby. Yeah. Is that what's on slowly? Yeah. Ah. And there were several with Red Foley, like walking in the cold, cold rain with a lot of pedals working, and uh, blue guitar. But the first I cut with the pedal was with Red Perkins in Cincinnati for King Records. And uh, he, he was a good singer. And I used pedals on that a little bit. Big Blue Diamonds? Yeah, Big Blue Diamonds. Be a nice man. All right, so that was uh, the charming Bud Isaacs talking a little bit about his um, first pedal steel and working on the song slowly. And like Dan mentioned and Mike, he's just such a joy to to watch that interview and uh, even some of our, what we call sometimes the B-roll footage of just him and his wife and Dan talking were, uh, it was quite enjoyable for me to be a part of as well. So coming up next, we are going to be listening to the recording engineer and inventor of the fuzz tone, Glenn Snotty, uh, has a great story about just uh, how sometimes uh, an accident can really be uh become quite a thing, uh, which is kind of what happened with the fuzz tone. Uh, and he's also going to talk about his involvement with uh, the Marty Robbins song, Don't Worry About Me. So here is Glenn Snotty. One of the things we did uh, was to buy a new console for the studio. And um, this was made in New York City. And... Um, we had to go to New York City to see what it was all about. And one Bradley and I got on a plane and went up there, and uh, uh, they had bought three of these consoles, and um, at least two of them, I think, are in the Country Music Hall of Fame now. But uh, back then, it was just one console we were interested in, and they shipped that down to us. And uh, that was the console that uh, Gray and Martin was playing through when this happened. And um, he, we didn't know it, but we found out later that uh, the company that built this console was moving to the West Coast, and they farmed out uh, about 50 output transformers uh, to someone else while they were moving to the West Coast. And I think all 50 of them got in our console. At least we found out later that at least 35 of them were bad. And uh, what had happened, uh, uh, apparently in uh, making the, the transformers, uh, they missed 
judge the windings somehow or other, and there were 250 volts going through the windings of uh, uh, the transformers, and one opened up at the time Grady was playing through it, and it, it uh, caused this sound, a fuzz tone sound later, we called it. And uh, that was, that happened on the song called Don't Worry. Uh, so we decided that that was something unusual and uh, we wanted to just leave it like that. And um, so we did that and uh, it was several um, weeks or maybe months later that uh, uh, the uh, industry picked up on this and um, they uh, had fuzz tones all over the place. I wish I had uh, met Owen. I never did get to meet him. I got to meet his brother. What sort of guy is uh, Owen? Yeah, Harold, yeah. What sort of guy did you find Owen to be? Well, he was a good musician. He had a great ear. Mm -hmm. he, he, could, he could produce a session that uh, uh, nobody else could produce. He had ideas that you needed to make a hit record. That's what everybody's looking for, a hit record. He certainly made a lot of them. Yes, he did. Uh, he produced some of the best records that uh, you'll ever hear of the type of music that we did. Loretta mm. <clears throat> Lynn and uh, those type artists are not easy to record, really. Apache Klein, he did them all. And he used a lot of the same session guys, didn't he? Yes, yeah. He'd augment them from time to time. Uh, he had probably about 15 musicians he would use at various times. But getting them back to what we were talking about, this console uh, produced this fuzz, fuzzy sound and uh, we had uh, the the people were were calling in to find out what it was. They couldn't understand what this sound was. That sounded like a trombone or a bass fiddle. They guessed everything in the world. Some of the uh, engine, uh, some of the DJs uh, would run tests to see what people would call it and uh, so uh, we had a artist Nancy Sinatra that picked up on that and uh, called and wanted to come in and make um, make a record well we didn't know why she wanted to do that but when she got there she f uh, we had to tell her that the console that was causing it sound had uh, the amplifier had quit and we couldn't do it anymore. 
and they didn't like that at all. <laughs> they they came there especially to hear that sound or get that sound when it was something we had no control over because it happened in the console. So, of course, everybody was disappointed in that. And uh, I told Harold Bradley that I'd have to see if I could make one and uh, get it going. So that's what happened. We got uh, uh, some uh, transistors and uh, one uh, friend of mine had some unusual transistors that at the television station, I called him, and he came over one afternoon, bought the transistors. We figured out what to do with them and uh, created the fuzz tone. And, um, and after that, uh, we found out that Gibson might be interested in hearing something like that. So I went to Chicago then and got hold of the Gibson people, and we uh, had them uh, make a, a circuit that would do that. In fact, we took one with us and plugged it in to the amp there, and they had a guitar player that was, uh, that was um, uh, on staff, and he came in and played it, and. Uh, Miss the owner of Gibson uh, said, well, that's it, we'll, we'll take it. So that's how the first song got started. That's fantastic. So how many did you make? I mean, what? How many fuzz tones did you actually make? Did, just uh, that one that you only, did? I only made one. Hmm. And Harold Bradley owns that one today. Is that right? Yeah. I gave it to him. <laughs> I don't even have one. <laughs> you don't even have one. No. <laughs> I have a, um, the memory of having made it, but uh, Owen, uh, Harold Bradley has the original first tone. So did you call it the fuzz tone at the time, or did that come later? No, I think we all agreed that uh, during the session that, that it was a fuzzy sound, so somebody, I don't know who, called it fuzz tone, and so that stuck with it. <laughs> I can imagine it was a little bit of a surprise when the board wasn't quite working that created the sound. Was there, did you guys want to try to fix the, Transistor in there? Well, it wasn't a trans transistor, it was a transformer. Oh. The transformer had gone bad. I think we ran through about 35 of them before we fixed them all. <laughs> what we had to do was get new transformers and put on each one of the preamps. So we, that, that fixed it, that fixed the uh, console wouldn't do that anymore and uh, then the first tone took over well the Gibson sold those to 
some big artists. Uh, and you had uh, uh, the record, I think, was Satisfaction that uh, really brought it uh, home. I can't get no satisfaction. And uh, that, that was about the end of that. <laughs> I'm sort of curious, how did you, what was your thought process in trying to emulate that mistake in the board to a, a device that you could count on replicating that sound? Well, uh, my friend was at WSM, uh, Revis Hobbs, came over and brought uh, some transistors that I didn't own, I didn't have, and uh, using those and uh, uh, actually, if you want to know the truth about it, it's like an overdrawn, overdrawn uh, uh, sound, uh, kind of a clipping sound, and uh, we had to make it so that it was consistent, and that's what we did. We just kept fooling with it until we got it like we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so did you work on that in the shop or in your house? No, on the shop. Okay. Yeah, we had a shop there that, uh, well, in fact, I was building another console for Owen at the time. And uh, he, he had two studios by this time, and uh, there were smaller studio was the one that uh, Johnny Cash used to cut uh, uh, his records. And uh, I happened to be engineer on uh, the big record of, um, oh, The Ring of Fire was the record that, that uh, we were, did uh, in the new studio with the console that I built. Hmm. We made sure we didn't have a first tone in the console. Well, <laughs> One other thought uh, thing that I found here in your book that I thought we would be interesting to talk a little bit about was uh, the recording session of Crazy. Were you a part of that? Uh, that's uh, you're talking about. Uh, Patrick Klein. I was there. I was not the engineer on the board, but I was there in a maintenance uh, type situation. But uh, uh, it was uh, it was just uh, natural because she was such a, a great artist. You you can't imagine. I listen to a record, the records now, and I can't believe they were as good as they were, because she was uh, just the tops of being able to sing and sustain notes and be on pitch all the time. Uh, she was an amazing artist. Yeah, I was there, and uh, for. A lot of the big records, I may not have been in the uh, control room all the time, but I was there. Yeah, this is a neat little um, 
document you put together of some of the um, the uses of the fuzz tone afterwards, Jimi Hendrix and people like that. You probably didn't think about that when you were making it. Not at all. And it's still used today. Uh, I uh, don't know how many people have asked me about it and uh, are amazed that this happened at all. But in effect, it was a complete disaster at the time. Uh, sometimes you have to turn disasters into something that's uh, positive, and that's what we did. Well said. I always wondered um, if it was considered sort of a mistake, you know, the board wasn't working. Had you thought about re-recording over that and doing it again? What was the... No. No, not at all. We were just hoping it would stay with us for a while. <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to Iconic Country Music Recordings here on the Music History Project podcast, and we're having a great time. This is fantastic. I love these stories. And uh, what a wonderful opportunity we had to interview Mr. Snotty back in uh, 2014. A shout out to our friends over at the Country Music Hall of Fame uh, for helping arrange this great interview. Um, and I just, I love that story, you know, as, uh, as Ashley said in her introduction, it's completely ironic that this became a iconic recording in country music because something went wrong with the uh, equipment and before you know it we had this great song it was instrumental uh, in influencing a lot of other people to try to emulate it to the point where we have our new product called the fuzz tone and it's just a great story um you know, I think it's worth mentioning this 1961 song and the uh, the uh, great session musician, Grady Martin, who was playing the guitar in question. Um, Grady was born in 1929 and uh, passed away in 2001, and I had a chance to talk to him but not interview him, uh, a regret I have for sure. He was uh, strongly involved with the Musicians Union there in Nashville, and one day I went in there uh, to see my friend uh, Harold Bradley, and this guy was sitting in the lobby, and a few people were gathered around him, and I'm kind of like, Who's, who are they talking to? Who are they talking to? And it was Grady, and uh, that was a neat moment I got to meet him uh, because of course we've heard all uh, all of us have heard that great uh, guitar of his on classic recordings like El Paso and the coal miner's daughter and a bunch of songs by Elvis and Buddy Holly and Johnny Cash I mean the guy was just an amazing musician part of the uh, famous a team in in Nashville so um, just wanted to give a shout out to him. And of course, uh, always great uh, when we can hear stories uh, from, uh, from Mr. Snotty. So next up, we're going to be hearing from recording engineer Kyle Lenning. Um, and Kyle has worked with many country artists in Nashville and also uh, along with Eddie ba uh, Bayer's uh, formed The Players, which is a group of studio musicians that play in the studio in Nashville. 
Um, so Kyle's going to be talking about his work with Randy Travis and more about the studio musicians in Nashville. Well, it started out, we had a, uh, we had collected some pretty good microphones. Uh, Tony's dad had a Bosendorfer grand piano, and Tony had was taken care of it. He kept it, so we used that. We had a like a you know this. It was a brick old block building on a lake, and we had a you know forty thousand dollar piano in this thing, which sounded really good. Um, and we I bought we found a a Sound Workshops console in a in a recording rig. Uh, a remote recording rig that we ended up buying and putting that in and uh, the thing actually sounded really good there was nothing in it it was real you know the guy the guys from sound workshop I think had originally come from API they had left API and just designed another console a much uh, lower priced board than the API but very good sounding console and we had an Atari analog 24 track and a couple of EMTs and we had an ATR half inch 2 track and Various and sundry. We had LA two A's when nobody wanted those. You know they were, and we had Telefunken two fifty ones. I think the most I ever paid for one of those was five hundred dollars. Um, so it, it was, you know, the studio was well equipped. We had good stuff, um, and um, so we were just making records as often as we could in there. Any highlights in that place for you? Well, uh, it was. It, it, I was rec making a record uh, for Keith Stegall, who was an artist for Epic at the time. Keith was a singer-songwriter, and I had gotten, because I had been doing some of the Dan Seals records and felt like I might be a good fit, so I started recording Keith. And one day Keith came in the studio and had a cassette and said, would you give this a listen? I said, sure. And I said, what is it? He says, well, there's this guy I'm recording a live album on out at a place called the Nashville Palace and his name is Randy Ray. And I said, okay. So I put the cassette on and I listened to about 20 seconds. I stopped and said, who is this guy? And he said, well, he's a, like the catfish cook out at the Nashville Palace. And I said, well, he's, I think he's great. And he said, yeah, me too. And I said, I can't get anybody to pay any attention. And, I, and so I listened to a little bit more and then I, I, I went out to hear him sing. I wanted to see if, if he could sing really sing that well live and I went to see him and lo and behold he did uh, and he would come out from behind the kitchen and put on a sport coat that was about two sizes too big and sing a little bit and I thought this guy's really good um, and Keith's manager was a guy named uh, Charlie Monk who's still in town and has a serious XM radio show that's pretty fun on Willie's Roadhouse one of the one of my favorite channels on XM Charlie called up and said, there's an A&R person at Warner Brothers named Martha Sharp that's been interested in Randy. Maybe you should call her. And I did. I called Martha and said, hey, I hear you're interested in this guy. And I said, if you ever want to do something with him, I'd be, I'd you know, throw my hat in the ring as a producer. And she signed him to Warner Brothers and changed his last name to Travis. And that was Randy Travis. And... Uh, he went on, he was another artist that I had no idea about anything other than I thought he was uh, really clear about who he was as an artist and had a wonderful voice and uh, had some real integrity in, in his uh, song selection and, and in his ability to deliver what he was doing. And in fact, 
I was and when we, we finished his first album, um, Randy, uh, Randy and I were the only two people in the control room, and we pl I played the whole album from the top to bottom, um, and I said, this was 85, 1985, late 1985, and I said, you know, I've done the math on this, and I know how much we've spent on this record, which was not very much, and I said, if we sell 40,000 copies, they might let us make another record, which is all I really wanted was to be able to make another one with him. And uh, he said, yeah, that'd be really good, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah, that would be good. And it sold 4 million copies. So who knows? <laughs> Certainly not me. Well, I think it's really you know, important to say that that album, I think, redefined a lot of people's impression of what country music was. It, it put it in more of a mainstream than it had been in probably years. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is your take on just the historic Well, uh, there, there was a lot of stuff that, was, that came to play in that, none of which any of us had any uh, real role in other than, I think the biggest thing I did was not screw that record up. Um, he was very, uh, very clear about being a, a, a traditional country singer. And um, and I loved that about him. Um, and at the time, Martha is, was a, is a wonderful song person, and she was a great A&R person there at that time. Nobody was looking for the kind of songs that Randy wanted to sing that we were looking for for him. We were looking for the best sort of modern but traditional country songs we could find. So there, there were buckets of them. We cut 20 sides and picked the 10 that ended up in the album was Storms of Life and picked the 10 that went on that album out of the 20. And that was a lot of that was Martha's doing, who just said, No, nah, I think we can let's keep going, let's find something better, you know. And we just kept, kept going at it. So it was, it was Randy being clear, it was Martha having uh, a real sense of the mission that we were on, um, it, me having come from the from, I have made these big pop records, but also I came from the Waylon Jennings experience, which was don't make it complicated. You know, it's about the singer, it's about the song, and just surrounding. So I brought that Waylon Jennings experience to, uh, to Randy. And I mean, we, had, we were recording on 24 track, but I remember some songs that we only used 15 because it was done. It was, you know, it just didn't need. A whole lot of stuff uh, on it, so we were in, I, just doing doing our thing and not being worried about um, being anything other than true to true to him and what he wanted to do. I mean, it's a great story. At one point, when his record really started to to blow up, when it really started to blow up, and he walked went into Warner Brothers, and one of the people at Warner Brothers said, "Hey, take a look at this." Your album is number four on the pop charts, and he said, "Pop charts," and he said, "Yeah, it's like you know the Billboard top albums. It's number four. He said, "Pop charts." He said, "Get it off there." Said, I'm not a pop artist. I'm a. I don't get it off there. And they went, "No, no, no. You don't understand. It's it's the top 200 albums in the country. It doesn't really matter what." He said, "Oh, oh." It was kind of okay, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean that. That's the real deal, you know. 
I love love Randy. We we had we had lots of fun making records. So you sold enough to do another one apparently. We did. <laughs> we made many. We got to make many together. Big fun. Almost all of them, right? I mean, all but two. Oh, well, three. He he left Warner Brothers at a period and went. I started running Asylum Records in '92, and uh, and then Randy went to uh, DreamWorks and made a couple records. Before that, he had made one record uh, that Steve Gibson actually produced uh, that I couldn't do because I had just started the record company and we had just finished an album. Randy and I, I couldn't go right back into another record and. And uh, so Steve produced that. So all but three of the albums that Randy's made in his career, I, I did. So we had a long, long, very fruitful, fun time together. That's fantastic. Yeah. And did you use a lot of the same musicians? It, it, if, it, yes and no. So it's funny, when I go back and look at those credits, I'm surprised by um, how, sometimes how different they are. It, it might be the same. There, there's three drummers that I think played most of the records and there are two or three bass players a couple of piano players and then Steve Gibson you find his name on every one of those records and uh, and then you know a few other uh, of uh, names here and there fiddle dobro sort of thing but uh, a lot of the same guys played played on those records which leads me to a little out of your um, your story, but I would love your thoughts about what we know is, you know, the Nashville Cats and the A Team, and I mean, it's a storybook of what these guys have done in the studio to uh, perpetuate music and and cover so many genres in one area. And, I, and I've been so fortunate in the early part of my collecting interviews here in Nashville, I got to interview like Buddy Harmon and some of the A-Team guys. So I have a deep appreciation, as I know you do, of some of them. I'd just love to hear your impression of, of their, their impact and, and, and your impression of knowing some of them. Well, I, uh, it, it's uh, magic is a funny word, but it's magic. And uh, it, it's not magic, uh, it's magic because all of those players that you mentioned, uh, Buddy Harmon, Bob Moore, um, uh, Floyd Kramer, all those guys were just consummate musicians. And, they, and none of them were just country players. Their uh, breadth of understanding of lots of different styles and lots of different forms all came into play when it came to, uh, to to doing the right thing on a record. Then you had guys like, you had Owen Bradley, for God's sakes, you know, who was, Owen had a big band and would play uh, dances and stuff in Nashville in the 40s and in the 50s. And Owen would, you know, would listen to Duke Ellington records and do takedowns of Duke Ellington records and, and do the charts and give them to the guys in the band. He wasn't buying Duke Ellington charts online. He would have to sit and listen to the record. You know, so you got Owen Bradley who who's making great country records who has that much depth in his his understanding. Chet's the same, the same. Most of those guys, they you know, Grady Martin, all these musicians were very, very deep players. Um, but also incredibly restrained and knew how to do exactly what was needed to uh, support the singer. They knew what their job was. So I got to be around a little of that when I first started. Um, 
and got to see you know those guys at work and it was all and, and it's still a privilege to work with great studio players and Nashville continues to uh, just foster the next next crew uh, you know musicians move here and some of them are great players in other other settings and they don't work here it doesn't doesn't work and some come and they fit right in um, it's it's a it's an odd sort of chemistry um, about it and the other thing is is there's uh, there just aren't any jerks if if you're hard to get along with you're not going to work because there's six guys that play at least as good if not better than you do and they're not going to be jerks and so it's you, there's a lot to pick from so and it's exciting now because it's there's there's so many young, uh, wonderful players coming to town, and it just con it's just continuing in a really positive way. I think in terms of just talent and ability. I have two sons. Uh, I have four sons, but two who do exactly what I did. My oldest son Jason, and my youngest son Jordan, and they've got they have their own sort of collection of of uh, you know players and and uh, knuckleheads that they work with that are just wonderful musicians and they, they they're just continuing that tradition of of uh, really serious but fun-loving people that make make great music what a great cat kyle lenning is that is so awesome great interview that was in 2019 he is such a gem i'm so glad i know that guy he has helped us with so many interviews helped us with background information and contacts Great, great guy, great story. So I'm so glad that we got to include him as part of this Iconic Recordings podcast. Uh, we're going to move on to our final segment now, uh, another very special interview that we got to uh, conduct back uh, just about a year ago in 2019 um, in Nashville with the uh, recording engineer Tom Pick. And Tom, what a great career he's had. Worked in Studio B, RCA Studio B, which is now a, uh, a historic landmark. In fact, you can go buy tickets at the Country Music Hall of Fame. They'll put you on a little shuttle and move you over to uh, have a tour of Studio B on uh, Old Country Row, they call it. Uh, and just a fantastic opportunity to be in the presence of some amazing recordings. Um, and they continue to record, actually, in that studio today. What's really kind of special about this particular interview is that um, I got to go to the studio that very morning and interview another gentleman and then went across town to do this interview with Tom. And just as I was leaving, it was Studio B. I mean, how cool was it to be in Studio B? Poor Mike and Ashley have heard the story a million times because I get so excited. I was so happy to be there. I stood where Elvis stood. And I stood where Jim Reeves stood. And I touched the piano. And I had all kinds of fun. The gentleman who uh, helped us, Justin, um, who gives the tours and kind of manages the studio there, I mentioned to him I was about to leave to go and meet Mr. Pick, and he says, oh, would you do us a favor? And I said, well, sure, you've allowed us to come here and record an interview. What can we do for you? And he said, there's a, a debate as to exactly where the song Jolene was recorded, and since he was a recording engineer, 
we'd love to have on tape him actually talking about where it was recorded. And I said, well, that sounds easy enough. So um, I brought it up during the interview, and we're going to play that segment for you. Um, so I don't want to give it away, but I will say that um, without a doubt, a great way to end this podcast of iconic country songs is the um, the song that we, I mean, some of us even know the date. It was May 22nd, 1973, when Dolly Parton recorded Jolene. That, to me, means it was iconic. So here he is, Tom Pick. Down through the years, uh, I did uh, 49 records that were number one at RCA. And uh, so... Is that all? (laughs) (laughs) That was a pretty big deal. That's a big number, no doubt. Yeah, a lot of... lot of, uh, well, Porter Dolly, and that... uh, They did... uh, I did a lot of work for them, and uh, also uh, Waylon Jennings, you know, people like that. And uh, Charlie Pride, I did a lot of hits for him, so. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah. So what was it like when you first, so it, was it Studio A and B already? Yeah, there okay. two studios, yeah. And what, what did you find to be the primary difference between the two? Well, Studio B is like the home plate of country music, I think. You know, everybody recorded there. And it was just, it was a great studio. You know, they had markings on the floor where the people would stand and stuff like that. And uh, just, it was amazing. Mm, no doubt. They had a little 12-channel board, and actually uh, it was three-track when I first started there. So everything was done, you had the band on one, one and three, and the vocal on the channel two, you know. So everything was mixed right there. And we'd run a um, two-track and a mono machine at the same time, and also a three-track machine, you know, in case you wanted to overdub something or something. So are there two studios in Studio B, or there's really only one? Just one. Well, there was two. At the end, there was two studios. There was just one to begin with, and they made a a mixing room and a studio and the, the main Studio B. Interesting. If you go through the tours there now, have you been on the tour? I sure have, yeah. Yeah, that first room you walk into where they got all the pictures and stuff like that. used to be uh, uh, offices, and then they turned that into a mixing room, <clears throat> and then right behind it was Studio D. And, uh, and we did a few sessions there. <laughs> you know, Floyd Kramer cut some stuff back there, where he wanted an intimate sound while everybody was packed on top of each other. <laughs> but we did it in there. And uh, they were fairly good-sized studio, you know. But uh, the main thing was the Studio B. It was really great. In studio A, we did a lot of things. Uh, Perry Como, uh, Cut and I Love You So, and that. And uh, in Studio A. And uh, well in used Studio A a lot. In Studio B, we use that. Uh, you know, he did some stuff there too. So, I was kind of interested when I saw that the control board is actually facing away—not a, completely away, but facing away from right, right. Yeah, the, the main window to to yeah, view. Yeah, it's that, over. It was, was over this, on the right side. Yeah, yeah. What was that about? Was there? That's the way it always was. Yeah. Really? Yeah. 
just size, you know. Okay. Back then, back when it was originally offices all around it, you know. Oh, okay. And, and what board was that? It was there. That's the old RCA board. It's it's in that uh, as you come in there, there's a room with pictures on the wall, and then there's a little room with a little console in there, and that's the old original console. Well, it's Studio B is like the home plate of country music, I think. You know, everybody recorded there. And it was just, it was a great studio. You know, they had markings on the floor where the people would stand and stuff like that. And uh, just, it was amazing. Mm, no doubt. They had a little 12-channel board, and actually uh, it was three-track when I first started there. So everything was done, you had the band on one, one and three, and the vocal on the channel two, you know. So everything was mixed right there. And we'd run a um, two-track and a mono machine at the same time, and also a three-track machine, you know, in case you wanted to overdub something or something. Any favorite stories of uh, recording Dolly? Oh, Dolly was just Dolly, you know. When you met her, you meet her, and the way you see her on TV and that, she just jolly and all. Swishy is all the time, you know. That's Dolly, you know. Did uh, seven number ones with her. So, did uh, uh, I Will Always Love You. That was one big, big one. And uh, I've got a picture on my, my phone in the box. We've got uh, I Will Always Love You and Jolene in the bargain store. They were all number one records. They all cut on the same session on the same box. And uh, it's amazing. No doubt. Yeah. Now, my friend Justin over at Studio B wanted me to ask you, huh? where, where were those songs recorded? In Studio B. I, I think there was something wrong. You know, they, it says Studio A on the box, but I think there was something wrong with Studio A at the time, and we moved everybody over to Studio B and did the sessions over there. And I don't know why it ended up where they said Studio A on stuff, but uh, I think it was done in Studio B. And Dolly thinks it's done in Studio B. So, <laughs> so there you are. <laughs> you can argue there. <laughs> like something was wrong with the board in A or something like that? Something, I don't remember what it was. Yeah. You know. How often did that happen? Or not switch studios? Not too often, no. No, it's pretty... They run pretty much all the time, so, you know, back in the days, you know, there's nothing to work four sessions a day. Yeah. So do you listen to any of those things now? Oh, sure. I listen to Willie Station a lot. Okay. I can listen to that, and I can hear, uh, normally in an hour's time, I can hear one or two of my recordings. Wow. You know, every hour. <laughs> <laughs> and when you hear them, do you kind of... Yeah. Sometimes, you, sure. Yeah. Like I wish I had done this differently. No, I don't. I just listen to them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Any favorites of Dolly's? Oh, I will always love you. Is great. I think. And Jolene, of course, is amazing. And uh, her Tennessee Mountain Home was a great album. I thought. You know, we're talking about all our folks and all that stuff in there. It's a great album. But I remember uh, 
Yeah, one time we were working on Jolene, and uh, we finally got the mix where we wanted. It was about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and uh, Porter says, I'm going to call Dolly and have her come down here that she's got to hear this. <laughs> she came down here, heard it, you know. That was a pretty amazing. Did Porter play on it, or was he... No, he was a producer on it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really cool. He and Bob Ferguson stuff. Mm. And Porter really had made a, a license plate for her when he he bought her new Cadillac, and uh, he had made a license plate for it, and it was Dolly. And uh, she only kept that a little while because, you know. People are automatically following her and stuff. Like that. <laughs> it's like a, be a beacon light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that didn't work too well. <laughs> All right, Tom Pick, the great recording engineer from RCA Studio B and A, uh, wrapping up our awesome podcast. Gosh, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Iconic recordings in country music. Man, there's just so many, and we're so blessed to have these great interviews to uh, help us tell this story. One of the final thoughts I had about this was just being in the room there with Tom talking about this uh, story about where Jolene was recorded. And he got on his phone and sent me a little picture of the actual tape box that said Studio A on it, so I could totally see in black and white that it was indeed a controversy that uh, remains until the NAM staff swooped in and changed history. Well, okay, we did a recording that hopefully is uh, going to be listened by people who uh, who have heard both sides and now have his story. So pretty neat stuff. I love it. I'm going to go with case closed on that mystery. I think we solved that case. All these interviews were so fantastic to, to listen to and to put together. You know the songs, and so it's great to hear those background stories of where they came from or how they were made, what the inspiration was. Um, but I think we need to do another one. I think we need to talk about some of the iconic country music uh, performers. What do you guys think? Absolutely. All right. I think that's what we'll do next. We'll do that on our next podcast. So yes, tune in two weeks from now to hear the follow-up to this episode where we'll be talking about iconic country performers, and they are just as important as the songs that they recorded. So be sure to tune in for that episode. But as for today, this is us bidding you farewell. Thank you for listening, and we, you will hear from us next time. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.